Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. You have to decide for yourself your source of truth. Cultural customs. If you've ever traveled much, you know that customs can vary from country to country, even region to region within our own country. And sometimes conflict can arise when customs collide. Quite frankly, you have to decide for yourself if you're going to receive your truth from the Word of God or if you're going to receive your truth from the Word of man. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. As we've been saying throughout this series entitled Crossroads, the city of Corinth was itself a crossroads for trade and travel. People from all over the world traveled through Corinth, bringing with them their cultural customs and practices. In the church in Corinth, Jewish believers brought their customs of head covering concerning men and women, and the Greek believers brought their customs concerning the same thing. For us in our culture today, that might not seem like a big deal, but in that culture, head covering had significance. As a result, there was trouble in the church over who should and who shouldn't have their heads covered. Should women still be coming into church with their heads covered? Is it wrong for a man to pray with a hat or cap on his head? That's the question we really want answered. What does it really mean for us today? As we'll see over the next couple of weeks, what the Apostle Paul had to say on the subject has something to say even to us in our culture today. Let's dive in. I have said this before. I said it the very first Sunday that we began this series entitled Crossroads, walking through 1 Corinthians and, Lord willing, eventually through 2 Corinthians. I said it the very first Sunday that we began this series, and I have said it a few times throughout the course of this series. But if you've been with us, you know how I have from time to time said that You have to decide for yourself in your life, you have to decide the source of your truth. I've said that several times in this series, and probably not just for this series, I've probably said it other times uh, throughout my ministry, but specifically in this series, uh, I have said several times that you have to decide for yourself your source of truth. When, When your children... Basically, your parents are your source of, of truth. They're telling you what's right, what's wrong, what to do, what to do. They may be basing that on, on, on the Bible, on God. They may be basing that on their own beliefs or whatever else. But, but there comes a point uh, where, where you have to decide for yourself the source of your truth. It's critically important because there, there's no question that what the Apostle Paul has to say here. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we just begin to scratch the surface today, what the Apostle Paul has to say here in 1 Corinthians 11, and he said other places in Corinthians if you've been in this study, what he has to say here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's no question, is, is in direct conflict with and diametrically opposed to much of what the culture has to say on the subject of which we have spoken. And so... Quite frankly, you have to decide for yourself if you're going to receive your truth from the Word of God or if you're going to receive your truth from the Word of man. You have to decide that for yourself. No one's forcing you. No one should force you. You have to decide. Am I going to receive my truth from the Word of God or am I going to receive 
my truth from the Word of God. It's really that simple. But it is critically important for children, teenagers, students, adults to decide for yourselves the source of your truth. Because, and I'll say it again, what the Apostle Paul says here is going to be in conflict with much of what the culture believes. You have to decide for yourself, and I'm going to go ahead and say this right up front, particularly if you are female, you're going to have to decide what the source of your truth is. Is it the Word of God, or is it the Word of man? Because there is conflict between those two, particularly on this subject that we're going to get into. This is not the first time that the discussion about women and men has come up in Corinthians. It's not the last time that it will come up, this discussion about men and women. But what Paul says here is a hard pill for our culture to swallow, and in fact, they do not swallow it. They reject it. But I'm asking you to decide for yourself the source of your truth. When discussing this whole idea of men, men and women and, and what, how that fits together and all that, and, and like I said, we are just going to scratch we're, we're just getting to verse 3 today, is all, just to give you an idea. Uh, we're just going to get to verse 3, but we're just scratching it. We're just introducing this idea, and then uh, we'll wrap up the rest of, uh, through verse 16, uh, Lord willing, next uh, Sunday. But uh, when discussing this idea of the relationship between men and women and the economy of God and how that all falls together, uh, when, when you look at that, that kind of thing, when you're deciding, hey, how does all this thing fit together? What is my role as a man? What is my role as a woman? Uh, what does it mean for my life? All this kind of stuff. To, and I've said this in one way or another also in the past. To figure out what God's perspective is on this. And, and by the way, that's the only perspective that really matters in the end. Is God's perspective. Not even mine. Well, I think, uh-uh. Not, not, if, not if I've decided that God is, 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 is the one true God that I'm following and all that kind of stuff. But just to, just to again kind of summarize what I've said in the past to, to understand God's take on this, and that's the only take that really matters, but, but you can look at it this way. Here's the way it really looks. Men and women, equality in essence, distinctive in design. Equality in essence, distinctive in design. There is no question that it has always been God's intention that men and women would be, would be seen as equal. That's clear throughout Scripture. It's clear in Genesis. It's clear in the book of Ephesians. It's clear in Colossians. It's clear in 1 Peter uh, that men and women are equal. That has always been God's intention. But being equal is not, does not mean the same. There are distinctives in design. Right, let me put it to you this way. From God's perspective, God's distinctive in design doesn't mean one is better than the other, just different in function. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other, just different in function. We are different, male and female. We are different, men and women are different physically. Men and women are different uh, psychologically and emotionally. Men and women are different uh, intellectually. And by that, when I say men and women are different intellectually, I don't mean that one is smarter than the other, although we do know that most women are smarter than men. But, uh, but I don't mean that one is smarter than the other, but what I mean is we, we think differently as male and female. We think 
differently. Let, let, let me give you an example. Uh, how many, if you're, if you're married, how many of you wives have at some point in your, in your marriage said to your husband, what are you thinking about? Right? And your husband says, nothing. And he literally means he's thinking about nothing at that particular moment. A woman cannot even conceive that you could literally be thinking about nothing in that moment because a woman is pretty much always thinking about everything all the time. So, uh, so we, are, we are distinct in design and praise God for, that, for those distinctions. But from God's perspective, distinctive in design doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It, it just means there's a difference in function. Let me give you an example. This is a sledgehammer. This is a nutcracker. It's not hard to look at these two and figure out that they are different in design and therefore different in function. Would you agree? Can I use a sledgehammer to crack open a nut, this pistachio, because it's impossible to find pecans or walnuts in their shell this time of year in the store? Trust me, my wife has gone to every store in Raleigh. We had to settle for pistachios. Can I, can I use a sledgehammer to crack open this? Uh, Matt, you want to hold your fingers here while I do this? Sure, you could, you could probably use it for that, but not without damaging the meat of the nut and or your fingers in the process, right? Because that's not what this was designed for. Can I use a nutcracker? To, to, to drive a, a nail or a bolt down in a, down in a, a piece of wood? I, I guess you could, not very efficiently, and not without great risk of damaging the nutcracker and therefore making it useless for what it was actually intended to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're both, they're both valuable to both their designer and owner, but it's quite clear that they are both designed for different functions. It doesn't mean that one is more valuable than the other. It simply means that their function is different. And so it is with men and women. It's not about one being better than the other or more valuable than the other. It is about a difference in function. That's the perspective that you and I have to take when we're approaching this idea. Okay? With that said... I'm going to read to you in just a moment 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And I want you to keep that in mind as we're, as we're making our way in this text, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have your Bible with you, you can open it to that. The text is up on the screen as well. This is important, even though we're just scratching the surface today. I hope if the Lord lets us come back next week, I hope you'll be here to kind of wind up the first half of 1 Corinthians 11. And then the week after that, Lord willing, we'll look at the Lord's Supper that Paul describes in the second half. And we'll have the Lord's Supper here that Sunday. Paul describes what was happening in Corinth and what should not have been happening in Corinth and what the significance is for our lives uh, today as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. 
Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. (laughs) Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that a man, that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Well, I, I'm certainly glad that there's nothing controversial in, in here for today. Aren't you? There wouldn't be anything in here that would be controversial today. It seems to me that there are two primary questions that need to be answered. First question, what did it mean for them? Why is Paul writing this, this particular subject? What, what, what brought up this subject? Why is he discussing this, this subject with the church in Corinth? What is the significance of it? And what does it mean for them? And the second question, and quite honestly the one that most of us are probably more concerned with, does it still mean the same thing for us today? Right? That's the question we really want answered. Should women still be coming into church with their heads covered? Should, is, it, is it wrong for a man to pray with, with, with a hat or cap on his head? That's the question we really want answered. What does it really mean for us uh, today? You know, I, I was thinking about this, and it's funny. When, whenever I uh, get the opportunity to uh, play around the golf with some of the guys uh, here at church, we uh, usually, uh, on the first tee, we will ha- have a, a prayer time before we tee off. I don't know that it helps our golf game at all, uh, but it just seems, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's instinct, it seems almost instinctual that if we have a cap on, everybody takes their cap off when we, when we go to pray. Years ago, back in the day, as Michael McCown likes to say, back in the day, but I mean way back, uh, women almost always wore a hat to church. Paris, you, 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 you're shaking your head. Not implying that you were back in the day, but, but you, you remember? Yeah. Women almost always wore a hat to church. You still see it some today, mostly on Easter. But my point is, it's not hard to see that both of those traditions had their, had their origin in this passage of Scripture right here. Had to have had their origin in this passage of Scripture. But what is it? What does it really mean for us today? Does it still apply? Should a woman make sure every time y'all come in here, should y'all have your heads covered? Should every man make sure that he never wears a, a cap or a, has a cap on when, when, he, when he prays? 
To answer that question, we have to answer the first one. So uh, break, we're going to break it down like this. Here's the first one. What did it mean for them? I've already voiced it, but to say it again, what did it mean for them? Let me start by saying that it, it, it doesn't take a, a biblical scholar to recognize. If you, if you read through this passage of Scripture, if you, if you read through chapter 10 and the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to figure out that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 should probably be 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 34. What I mean by that is that verse 2 of chapter 11 clearly embarks in a new direction. It clearly embarks on, an, on a new subject. Where verse 1 fits more neatly into the way chapter 10 finishes. And so, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 probably fits better into the end of chapter 10. Remember, there were no chapter or division statements in the original letters, in the original manuscripts. There weren't any division statements, chapter divisions, verses. None of that existed in the original manuscript. Those were added later for ease of reading. So even though most uh, biblical scholars agree that verse 1 is in a clumsy place, that it probably belongs on the other end of, of chapter 10, the reality or the application of verse 1 is still true universally. It's still true uh, to chapter 10. It's going to be true for chapter 11. It's going to be true for all of God's Word. And it's, and it's vitally important for you and I to understand for living the life of Christ uh, in this world in which we exist. And so he says there in verse 1, he starts with those words, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, on the surface, we first read that, we might, we might be tempted to think, wow, that's pretty bold, Paul. That's pretty bold. Telling people, hey, imitate me. You must really think a lot of yourself. But in studying the life of Paul and, and in studying the letters that he wrote, we know that it's actually just the opposite of that. We know that the Apostle Paul thought very little of himself. We know that the Apostle Paul actually understood that in himself, that is, in his flesh... If he, if he doesn't allow himself to be controlled by the Spirit of God, that in his flesh, the Apostle Paul understands that he will almost always choose the thing that God would not want him to do. And so all that Paul is simply saying is, hey guys, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to imitate Christ. I suggest you guys do the same thing. Now, obviously, the whole life of Christ is, is a model for us to emulate, right? His, his wisdom, his compassion, the way he interacted with with people, his priority on the spiritual instead of the material, his devotion to, to prayer life. Jesus Christ's whole life is a model that, that we could look at and we could emulate and we could try and live like. But, but I wonder if there's one passage of Scripture that, that we might look at that could kind of summarize what is the key to living the Christ-like life, to living like Jesus. In fact, there is, and the Apostle Paul wrote it also. In Philippians chapter 2, you've read these words probably before. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, have, have the same attitude Jesus had. Now, can I just stop here before I read the rest of it and just say, the, say this to you? If, you? if you stop and think about that that, that, that sounds impossible. How can I have the same attitude as, as Jesus? It's Jesus. I'm not talking about Jesus, we're talking about Jesus. How can I have the same attitude as Jesus? Can I tell you this? He wouldn't say this if it wasn't possible. 
It is impossible in yourself, by the way, but with the Spirit of God in you, eh, okay. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he, 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 although he was God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The secret to the Christ-like life, the secret to all of this is for us to have this, this same attitude that Christ. If, if we do not approach life humbly, meaning from the perspective of it's about others, it's not about me. From the perspective of uh, it, it's, it's not about what I can get out of this or who I can take advantage of or, or how I can uh, elevate my position in this life. If we, if we do not approach life from this perspective, then we will never reach what God intends for us to reach. If we, it, it, it's vitally important that both men and women understand that this is the key to the Christ-like life. To have this attitude in, in you. The King James translation says, have this mind in you. Do it like Christ did it. It's vitally important that men and women understand. Men have to understand the reality of this statement. Otherwise, otherwise, men will in fact, because of their size, because of their strength, because of uh, their, their, their stature, men will attempt, try, will take advantage of women. And of course, historically, that's what we have seen. Historically, we have, have seen men throughout various cultures, throughout history, uh, take advantage of a woman's vulnerability, take advantage of a woman's position, and have treated women as less than equal, as, as less valuable, have treated women with less uh, than, uh, than men because of the very fact that they can. Now, women's uh, feminist movement today, if they were here, they would be standing up at this point saying, amen, that's right, absolutely. You finally got something right. If, the, if, 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 if today's feminist movement were here, they would say, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. Men, historically, not all men, but historically, men have taken advantage of women. They have, they have, they have, they have, They've done this thing, and that's why we have to d demand our rights. That's why we have to stand up and demand that we be treated that we be treated exactly the same as men. But that's not right either. A, because men and women aren't the same. No matter how loud you shout it, we're equal, but we're not the same. And B, demanding my rights—that doesn't sound much like the Jesus model either, does it? So it's vitally important that, that we understand. Verse 1, be imitators of Christ as I am of you based on Philippians 2. Let this mind, let this attitude be in you. That sets the table for receiving what he's going to say in, in, this, in verses on down through verse uh, 16. But he starts by commending the Corinthians because, and it says there in the latter part of verse 2, it says, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered. He starts out by commending them. Because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions that I just delivered them to you. Now, we know from an earlier place in Paul's letter, he had already mentioned that he was receiving no financial uh, support, no material support from the Corinthians. So that, that can't be what 
that, that first statement, you remember me in everything, it can't mean. What it, what it has to mean is that you remember me in everything is directly connected to home, hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In other words, even though there were some people questioning the Apostle Paul's apostolic authority, we already looked at some of that, even though there were some people in Corinth that, that preferred one teacher over another, what Paul is commending them for is that clearly he still had a significant influence on the church in Corinth. There were still people listening to the Apostle Paul. I would, I would dare to say that the majority of the church in Corinth uh, was, was trying to learn from Paul, was, was, uh, was trying to follow Paul's instructions. That's why we know that they mailed him a letter. Mailed? I don't know. We know they sent him a letter with a bunch of questions about, hey, what about this situation? Or how do we do this? Or how do we do that? We know that they had done that. And so it is a, it is, it's clear that they respected his wisdom, his discernment, and they, and they wanted to learn from here. His, his, and he commends them for that. And then comes verse 3, where he says, but I want you to understand. So with that, the implication is the Apostle Paul is now going off into something, something new, something perhaps that they... That they, they, that they were not worthy of being commended for, possibly. He begins to go off in a different direction. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that, that I want to say to y'all. I don't think this should have been new. At least this first part. Now, he's going to get into some new stuff. But this first part isn't really new. Let me, let me read it again, what he says. Verse 3, all of it entirely. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. That, that, there's a lot to unpack there, okay? But it, but, but, it, but it begins with this priority of understanding that this is not about superiority, this is about submission. This is not about superiority. This is not about one being better than the other. This is not about one being more valuable than the other. You know, one of the ways or reasons that we can know that for absolute certain? In the text there, there in verse 3, Paul says, uh, God is the head of Christ. Well, we know, we know theologically that Christ is God. So when the Apostle Paul says that God, implying God the Father, is the head of Christ, we know that they are equal. The Apostle Paul taught that they are co-equal, that they are co-eternal, that they are God, that they, along with the Holy Spirit, make up what theologians refer to as the Godhead. It is a fundamental principle of Orthodox Christianity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, uh, ruling over their, over their creation. That's a fundamental truth of, of God. So, that means that this cannot be some sort of order of superiority. Because Apostle Paul had, would have clearly been teaching them that Christ was God in the flesh, and that He was co-eternal. And so that therefore means that then the phrase also in there, man is the head of a woman, cannot mean superiority in any way because one, he's just said Christ, Christ and God are, God is the head of Christ. That doesn't mean superiority. So in the same way, man is the head of woman cannot mean superiority. But Christ willingly here it is, he willingly submitted, he willingly placed himself under the authority of the Father to accomplish the purposes for which the Father sent him. So it's not about, oh, man is the head of a woman. 
It's not, a, it's not, no, it's not what, that's not what that means. It's not meaning that man is better than a woman or, or superior to a woman or, and here's what it is. Let me give it to you in a statement. <clears throat> or let Tyler give it to you in a statement. This is about voluntary submission, not involuntary subjection. Listen, you and I need to understand, that's how God rolls. That's how God operates, ladies and gentlemen. God has never been about forcing, as best I understand, God has never been about forcing his will on anybody. What does what God, even in God's relationship to us, what does he say? Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me. Notice the invitation. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's an, there's, there's an invitation in that. What does he say? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and... Knock. Not, behold, I'm pounding down your door, I'm busting down your door, and I'm taking you prisoner. No, that's not what he said. What he says is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would hear my voice and do what? Say it. Open the door. If you'll open the door, I will come in and dine, sup, fellowship with you and you with me. It's never been, as I understand Scripture, it has never been God's design or desire to force his lordship on anyone, but to allow us the opportunity to voluntarily come up under his lordship and authority over our lives. That's what this is about. So in the same way, man is the head of a woman. In the same way, in the same way, does not mean that a man has the right to force his authority over a woman. And any man who does, any man that tries to force his wife into subjection or, or force a woman to submit to him, any man that does that, he himself, therefore, is not submitting to the, to the prior one listed, which is every, every man, Christ is the head of every man. He is not submitting to the authority of Christ in his life if he tries to force his wife to submit or subject to. This is about voluntary submission not involuntary subjection. That's what our culture needs to understand. That's what men and women need to understand. Okay, with all of that said, let me, let me, I need to wind this up. Let me say this to you quickly. Because I, I mentioned a few moments ago that, that that's really not, I don't think that's anything new. The Apostle Paul had spent a significant amount of time in Corinth. He clearly would have taught them that Christ was God. He clearly would have taught them the equality between the Father and the Son. He clearly would have taught them the roles within the, the home and the marriage and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't think that's necessarily new. So why does Paul bring this up? This, this, this Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman. Uh, God is the head of Christ. Why does, he, why does he bring that up? At this point, I'm going to freely admit to you that there has to be a bit of speculation as we walk through this text. I'm going to have to speculate a little bit about this. Uh, it's not anything new. Every, every commentator, every scholar that has ever taken on this passage has had, to, has, has, had to, has had to do this, had to do a little speculation. One of the reasons I love, can I tell you all this? One of the reasons I love working through a, a book in, in one of my series, I don't always do it, one of the reasons I love working through a book is that it does not allow you to skip the hard passages. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a hard passage. Not... Not because it is in direct conflict with much of what our culture teaches. I'm okay with that. I decided a long time ago the Word of God is my source of truth. But what makes it hard in this case is that it is 2,000 years removed from the setting and the situation in which it's occurred. And of course that's true of all of Scripture, right? We could say, well, all, all the Bible, we're 2,000 years removed from the newest part. That's true. But I'll say this, in most passages we know enough historically, we have enough context, enough is explained in the text to to arrive at an understanding of the text fairly easily. Some more difficult than others, but fairly easily. This text, eh, not so much. 
Now, we know a lot about Corinth, but we don't know everything about Corinth. And we know what Paul tells us, but, but there, there's still some areas where we're going to have to try and piece some gaps together. So the question is, why is Paul bringing up this whole head of this, first person, head of that, head of that, uh, wearing a head covering? Why is Paul bringing this whole thing up? Let me bring, let me bring it right here. Here we go. I think there was an issue going on in the church in Corinth that they eventually ended up asking Paul about, even though it does, he, it does, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say he's responding to a question. I think there was a question. And it had to do with a cultural practice in, in Corinth, in that part of the world, uh, in, back in that day. We don't know when it started, but somewhere along the way, we know it started way before the time Paul writes this letter. So sometime in antiquity, sometime before the church came into existence, Jews had begun the practice of putting on a head covering, men, of putting on a head covering, a hat, when they prayed. Always. They still do it today. Jewish men put on a yarmulke. Uh, and, it, and they would put this on, and they still put it on today. It was a way of, of it's speculation, but it's a way, you got that picture, Tyler? It's, it's a way of, of uh, supposedly, we don't know for sure, nobody knows exactly why they started doing it. Nobody recorded it. But there's speculation that they did it as a way to maybe to perhaps show that they were submitting to God. They were placing themselves under God. But we really don't know. But at some point before this, Jewish men always wear something on their head when they pray. Conversely, Jewish women did not. They did not wear something on their head to distinguish the difference between men and women. We'll get to that uh, next week. Okay? Jewish men, head covered. Jewish women, head not covered. In the Greek world, guess what? Traditionally, in the Greek world, and the farther east you went, the more you found this. In the, in the Greek world, in that part of the culture, women covered their head, sometimes even veiled their faces. It was a way of showing submission, it was a way of showing modesty, it was a way of showing uh, submission to their, to their spouses or placing themselves, it was a way of honoring their spouses. And so in that culture, women always, and still today, in many parts of the world, women will cover their heads, especially when they pray. Now, help me here, the church in Corinth is made up of who? Men and women, men and women from where? It's made up of men and women who are Jews and who are Gentiles, predominantly from the Greek thing. Okay, so here's what, this, here's what you need to understand. In that culture, the covering or not covering of your head had a cultural significance. It had a meaning to it. Okay, this, this is important for understanding what it means to them is going to be important for our understanding of what it means to us. In that culture, the covering or not covering of your head had a cultural significance or meaning to it. So, here you go. Here you've got, the, you've got Jewish men who have come to Christ, coming into church with their hats on, or at least when they pray and prophesy, as Paul says there, we'll get to all explaining all that, uh, they've got a head covering. And the Jewish women uh, who have come to Christ, coming into church, and they don't have their head covered, or at least when they pray and prophesy, they don't have their head covered. And you've got the, the Gentile, the, the non-Jewish men who have come to Christ, coming into the church, or at least when they pray and prophesy, and they have nothing on their head. And you've got the Gentile women uh, who have come to Christ, uh, coming into church, or at least when they pray and prophesy, and they've got something over their head. Can you see the potential for a little bit of a trouble, a little bit of problem here? Because you can just hear it. Listen. If you've hung out in church more than five minutes, you've heard it. You, you, could, you can just hear these Jewish men. Look at those Gentile men not covering their heads. 
when they're going to pray to God, how shameful. And you can just hear the Greek women. Look at those Jewish women. Can you believe they're not covering their heads? They're not covering their faces? How shameful. And you have the perfect potential, the perfect scenario for there to be division within the church. And hey, Corinth had all of that they needed. They didn't need another reason to fight. But that was the, I'm telling you, there was cultural significance in covering or not covering your head depending on your cultural background and where you came from. And I believe that's why the Corinthians had written to Paul and say, who's right? Who's right about this? Should, should, should a man have his head covered when he prays or should a man not have his head covered? Should a woman have her head prayed, uh, covered when she prays? Should a woman not have her head covered? Who's right about this? And the answer, we'll have to wait till next week. What you have or don't have on your head seems like a funny thing to fight over. But as we learn today, head coverings had a great significance in the culture in which Paul wrote this letter. We've only just scratched the surface of this difficult passage, but already we can see that what Paul says has bearing even on our culture today. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, discovering how to really live in the promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I get it from Clay Stevens. They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice real. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.